lovely to be here again. I'm looking forward to the camp too, which will be really great. And Peter Adam is brilliant. He's just... I love the guy. I had a um, similar story to uh, Steve's earlier. When I was eight, there was a certain chocolate sauce bottle that was up high. And just a little sip, nobody would never notice... Except on Christmas Day, when Dad said, Tom, would you go and get the uh, chocolate sauce bottle, please? I really wanted him to take me down to the bedroom and give me a whack on the backside of what it felt, because blows that wound cleanse away evil. I was so guilty. It was empty, you see, the chocolate sauce bottle. Yes. We're sinners, aren't we? Let me pray for us. Oh, our loving Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the infinite one. Thank you that you delight to draw draw near to the humble and the contrite, those who want to be holy like you. Please help me to speak. Speak in the very words of God and please um, encourage us and do a deep work in each of our lives. We keep praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever pondered on how do you relate to one who is infinite? You ever chewed on that? We're finite. God's infinite. How do you relate? Because we're, we're made for a relationship, aren't we? Um, we're talking, communicating, um, in, on the human level, sharing experiences together, mutual understanding and enjoyment, friendship, being together, conversation. And we're watching little ones grow, you know, the, the first words and, and eventually they go, blah, 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 they, they, they just pause out. Just the ability that, that we're designed with to be able to communicate. And not just with words, um, there's all sorts of interesting expressions. My uh, daughter, speaking from uh, London on Skype, she said, oh, I like your eyebrows. I trimmed them a bit so it wouldn't look so bad this morning. But... Um, the, uh, we communicate in so many ways, don't we? We are designed for relationship. And we're designed for relationship with each other, to lo- as the command says, to love, e- love your neighbour as yourself. And we're designed for relationship with him, with God. He's big, though, and we are little. He's infinite, and we are finite. But he said one of the big themes in Scripture, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's Revelation finishes that way. My own people. That close relationship. Now in heaven we'll be able to see him. We haven't got that privilege yet. Today we walk by faith and not by sight, don't we? But we're waiting for the day, with the capital D, when we will be able to see him and notice the nuances of the expression that... Um, because we were able to see Jesus in his human form. Now, how does this infinite relating to a finite look like? Let's take, first of all, from God's perspective. Those two verses we just read from Isaiah, a couple of my favourite verses. There's a particular characteristic of the, the person God likes to draw near to. It's the humble one. The one who is contrite. That is that they are seeking to turn away from those things that are displeasing to God. 
So we've got Isaiah 57.15. And you'll notice that in both of these verses, God emphasises how big he is. He's used to it. He knows what he's like. He says, thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a humble and contrite spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. See the big relating to little? Isn't that lovely? God, God's not that wrapped with proud people, you know. They're way down the queue, waiting on the queue waiting to, be, to have a chat with God. The first in the queue is the humble and the contrite. He draws near to them. He says the same thing again, slightly different form in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says, Yahweh, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So with infinite relating to finite, God to us, that's how he sees it. He doesn't have a problem with it. He knows we're finite. But he loves to draw to you to the humble. Isn't that encouraging? You know, when you get just by yourself with, with, with your Bible and God, be encouraged. That's, the Lord loves that. While he is infinite, he enjoys drawing close to his humble people. He understands our frailty. One of the songs, and as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. Now that's from his perspective. Being holy, he appreciates his people also wanting to be like him, to be holy. And that's where the contrite part comes in. But in this psalm, it's a very famous psalm, Psalm 139, we get to see it from the other's perspective, from the human looking at the infinite one. <coughs> so the Lord's given us this example and it's, clear, it's a psalm of David. Make sure when you do the reading, by the way, that you read that the, the intro bits, because it's a psalm of David. It helps you get perspective. It's the one who was a Goliath killer, the one who was the king, the one who mucked up with you know, Bathsheba. That man, that's the kind of, that's who's talking here. So it's helpful to have, um, we, here we have a, an ordinary human being finding difficulty or wrestling with this issue of how do you relate to a holy God and he relates it actually in four sections first of all on and we'll use some technical terms here omniscient that's all knowing omnipresent or everywhere all wise and powerful creator speaks for itself and then finally the holy God those four sections is what uh, how the psalm breaks it down. So with our first section, how well, and we've already discussed this this morning, how well does Yahweh, the Lord, know you and me? Well, he's omniscient, omni-everything, science to do with knowledge. He knows a lot. But it's not just passive knowledge. It's active knowledge, because he says... You have searched me and known me. 
He didn't say, I, I know you. He's actually active, isn't he? He checks us out every morning, as it says in other places. And not just the important stuff, he knows the trivia. You know, when you get up, all your little habits, it is idiosyncrasies, the rising sitting and which path I'm going to take and, and the important stuff, what I'm thinking. And he doesn't need to get inside my head to know what I'm thinking. He doesn't, he can see it from afar. It's like a Wi-Fi, you know. He could just, he just tune in to all of our thoughts. He knows. And he's not a passive, it's active and it's interested. He can read you and me like a book and he's interested in every thought. Trivia. Everything about us is understood completely. Even the thinking behind what I'm going to say, he knows it completely. Says the same thing in Hebrews 4.13. And before him, no creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's important as God going to be judged one day, isn't he? For every single thought or word. If he didn't have this omnipresent ability and this ability to know everything, he couldn't be a fair judge. So it's very important that we grasp that we're dealing with somebody and understand that he, know, that we, that he is, knows everything about us. Verse 5, we're hemmed in by him. We're close to him, protected by him, secure in his presence. And note his hand. His hand comes up quite a few times in this psalm. You lay your hand upon me. It's a picture of fatherly care and protection, of warmth, of involvement with us. Now, how does David handle this knowledge, dealing with one who is infinite? Guess what? He says, I I can't handle it. It's it's just too much for me to cope with. I'm glad he feels that way about it, don't you? Because the reality is it's huge that God knows that much about us and the number of thoughts he has towards us. It's too wonderful, too high for him to grasp. But it is the reality. We must get that. It's the reality. It's a reality. It's not easy to grasp, but get used to it. The reality doesn't need to be easy to grasp. It's the reality. This will come up several times because we're dealing with the infinite God, aren't we? Okay, so number one, we are known by completely our God and surrounded by this infinite God. So how does knowing I am completely understood by my God help me to relate to him? Well, when you're with somebody who knows you that well, it's, it's really easy to be open, isn't it? Or you can close off, as we've already heard this morning. But that's not the way David wants to relate to God. Knowing I'm completely understood. I don't need to keep any secrets from him simply because I can't. Okay, he's got some applications. For example, um, 
you're sitting there, you can be praying silently right now. God tuned in? Yep. Because he knows what you were thinking right now. So it's, we, as we don't need it for, oh, sorry, Lord, I'm out of range, you know. Wi-Fi's been turned off and... Uh, no, it's just it's, it's another benefit because he knows us that well because he knows us continually then we're with somebody who we relate to on an any moment by moment basis we don't need a, a shoe, shoe phone or any of that kind of stuff now let me give you a practical New Testament illustration how this will apply in your daily life how well God knows you Say you're wrestling with a particular temptation. There's a chocolate sauce bottle up in that cupboard. Or there's bickies in that barrel. Got a verse for you. And I think you'll be able to fill it, finish it for me. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Anybody know 1 Corinthians 10.13? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength beyond your ability but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it now what does that tell you about what God knows about you does he know you've been tempted yes does he know what you can bear yes does he know what your limits are yes will he be able to provide you with a way of escape yes that all assumes the omniscience of God, doesn't it? That's the God we're dealing with on a daily basis with the temptations we face. He knows our weakness. We know our weakness. He knows our limits. And he doesn't just know that. He knows what the temptation is like because he himself has suffered and been tempted. As Jesus our great high priest he's able to help those who are tempted from Hebrews he knows personally how hard temptation is and he knows you and me completely and the temptation and therefore he can help that's a practical application of the fact God knows you and me completely but second section maybe I feel like God's a long way away what do I need to grasp? What do I need to get into this, these little grey cells? That he is always near. That he is omnipresent. And so David asks a whole lot of questions. Where can I flee from God's face? It's where, where God can see me from his spirit. Where can I flee from his presence? And he gives a whole range of possibilities, a series of opposites, high and low, far away, maybe darkness. And David doesn't just say, you're there watching me. Note verse 10, he's again involved. His hand is guiding, holding secure. Wherever I am, even there your hand shall, um, shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is fully involved. You remember in John 10, Jesus said, as our shepherd promised, no one can snatch them out of my, you or me, out of my hand. Remember that one? God's hand again. And the father who has given the sheep to me is greater than all. 
No one, but no one, can snatch them out of my Father's hand. We are in God's hands, secure. He's always there, wherever we are. You say, well, what about in the midst of the Mediterranean, storm-tossed sea, Paul prays, an angel visits him in the middle of the ocean out there. Remember that? In Acts. God's there. He's, God's everywhere. Oh, inside a fish. You never... Darn. Yeah, he's trying to get away and he's inside a fish and he can pray. Not lovely? God's everywhere. When you go into your room... In secret, as Jesus said, and pray to your Heavenly Father who sees in secret and who will reward you. He's everywhere. I I just need to get used to that reality. That's just a fact. He's always present. Always guiding, protecting, keeping you and me secure. Section three. <clears throat> Appreciating my creator. Here's another blow your mind one. For he knows our frame. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. He made us. Made you, he made me. And once again, it's his hands. In Psalm 119, one of the prayers that the psalmist prays is he actually uses this, the fact that God made me as to support his, his request. Because this is what he says. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I might learn your commandments. Creator, you made me. Uh, help me to learn, you know. Going to the right place, isn't he? But he's under, the, the psalmist realizes I'm made by God, and uh, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're made in His image, able to relate, to communicate, think, reason, feel emotion, appreciate beauty, enjoy, be able to do so many different things. Take this a hand here. You watch Nathan, you know, and the. He's not thinking about what the hand's doing up here or down here. He's thinking about the words and this changing chords. And it's an amazing piece of equipment. It's phenomenal. That's just the hand. You've formed my inward parts. You've knitted me together in my mother's womb. You know, it's important for our self-understanding that we appreciate the wonder of what God's made in making you and making me. We're made in his image. And we all have different gifts and abilities that all contribute to the good of God's family and to the world in general. Complex, aren't we? Not just the whole complexity of the whole of society. But... Thinking back to us, David knew he was complex. Now in today, in God's providence, we are only beginning to grasp the utter complexity of what we are. That is us. From a single cell, you and me, 
We were all once a single cell. To roughly, by the time you're born, three trillion cells. At birth. With each and every cell, there's a complete, a complex control centre, a nucleus, and in that there's a DNA, which you've heard about, and if you take the actual length of the DNA, it is two metres in length, all bunched up. That's the control compartment of the cell. And according to one of my favourite non-Christian authors, Michael Denton, he's a microbiologist, to appreciate the complexity of a single cell, you need to magnify the single cell to a kilometre, so it's 20 kilometres in diameter. And then to travel around and see the bewildering array of chemical biological machinery that's creating as many different products as the number of man-produced products in the whole world. It's astoundingly complex. And he says so in his book, and that's just one cell. And at maturity we grow to be 50 to 100 trillion cells. And they all work together smoothly, don't they? Mostly, anyway. It's just phenomenal. We are phenomenally complex. David knew it. And he just, we need to grasp it too. It's another one of those get used to it things, isn't it? Are we used to being complex? We live with it. But we mustn't forget how fearfully and wonderfully we're made. But David takes his thought a little bit further in verse 15 and 16. It says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately wrought in the depths of the earth. Ultrasound not needed. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And here's a big one. In your book were written every one of them that the days that were formed for me. Not only did you form me, you formed my days, every one of them, when as yet there was none of them. Yahweh can see the, the one in the, term, in the womb, but he knows not just the infinite complexity of our daily development as we are formed, he knows and has written down the formation of all of your days and mine ahead of, ahead of time before they came to be. Easy to grasp? No. <coughs> Important to know? Absolutely. There are those who uh, that say God doesn't know the future. And that totally undermines the gospel. God knows the future. <coughs> He knows all the days. He is the transcendent God. And we're not to hide from God's transcendence. He is God and knows the end from the beginning. Hard to grasp? Yeah. But important too. But it's the reality. So how does David respond to the wonder of such a God and his creating not only him, but creating all his days? Well, verse 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. And then he finishes very interesting. I'll discuss this in a minute. I awake and I'm still with you. 
So first of all, in, our, in the first part, in our human relationships, we appreciate when somebody appreciates what we have to say, don't we? When they listen carefully, they value what we say. Well, that's exactly what David just said to God. Lord, your words, your thinking is wonderful. I, I just delight in it. He values God's thoughts exceedingly. Just like a psalmist in, oh, how I love your law, your word. It is my meditation all the day. And you know how Steve's written that little calendar? I'm, I'm using that one, the once a year reading one. And I thought, yep, okay, let's do it. And it's been a blessing. At the same time in travelling here, I'm also listening to one, slightly different to Steve's. And that's been a blessing too, just sitting and listening to a, a day's reading. Actually, I'm a little bit ahead there at the moment, but it's how wonderful God's thoughts are. So what we want to do as a church, we want to encourage each other to be thinking about God's thoughts. That's why it's important for us to meet together like this, to be thinking God's thoughts, expounded. But, but notice this little, how he concludes this segment. It says, when I awake, I am still with you. Not you with me, I'm with you. Is that a complex thought to hang on to? You wake up in the morning, yep, I'm still with you, Lord. That's the level of thought I can cope with. It's not too complex, is it? Isn't that nice and simple? It's back to relationship again. Yes, there is complexity. We live with complexity. We live with a complex God. We are complex. But we are in a relationship with that God and he is with us. We are with him. That really struck me very forcefully, you know. I'm just thinking, with so many complexities in this psalm, the simplicity of just relaxing in knowing I'm in a relationship in relationship with my Heavenly Father as I wake up each morning. But as we move into the next section, when David wakes up, he's not in heaven yet, is he? David lives in the reality of a dangerous and troubled world. In this last segment, we see David relating well to Yahweh, the holy God, in this troubled world, in verse 19 to 24. And there's an abrupt change in the whole flow of the text. We move from the tranquility of verse 17, oh, how precious to me your thoughts, O oh God, to the fierceness of, of verse 19. It's a bit jarring. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God, or oh, oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Where did that come from? That's sort of out of the left field, isn't it? But it's not, actually. He's coming to the holiness factor of God. David is coming back to the hard reality of the wicked world around him. And he wants... He wants the Lord Jesus, as it were, to come. The, 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 day, the, the day with a capital D. He also has to deal with the reality of the tendencies within himself, which is how he finishes the psalm. Now, there is complexity in this, se- in this section. It's not an easy one. Surprise, surprise. 
David begins by describing God's enemies. Not his own enemies, God's enemies. And notice how strongly the villains are described. It's just like, you know, when you watch a movie, you know, you've got goodies and you've got baddies. Do the baddies have anything positive about them when they're shown to start off with? Is there anything nice about them? Yes or no? No. They are shown to be arrogant. You know, you want, what do you want for them? When you see what they do, how wicked they are, how you, you want justice for them, right? Which actually set up that way. The whole, you, you're just waiting to see when's justice going to come. And that's what David has just done. He has displayed all the arrogance and the evil of these wicked people. Just like we need the, to develop the itch or the need to see justice done, that's exactly what David wants on these people. Because they are God-haters, wicked, bloodthirsty. They speak with malice against God. They use God's name for a curse. They rise to oppose God. It's a very thorough description of black-hearted villains that have given themselves over to evil. David is longing that the Lord would remove them powerfully. He's not, it's not his job to do it. He knows God's got to do it. It's like I said, it's, it's almost like a plea for heaven to come, that the day would come. So what David is saying in summary here is that he agrees with Yahweh about Yahweh's enemies. Your enemies are my enemies. I'm totally on your side. David hates them. In his holiness, God hates them. Don't hear that line very often, do we? Thought God was just loving. But but does Yahweh hate his enemies? Does he loathe people? Oh, let's go to a commentary. The scriptures, Psalm ninety-five. Here's a bit of it. Today, his prayer, the prayer, the, the psalmist writes. Today, if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. He's reminding the people about when they had been brought out of Egypt and uh, how they rebelled against God in the wilderness. Do not harden your your hearts as at Meribah on the day of Massa in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof that they'd seen my work. For 40 years, this is God speaking, I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Number one, commentary. Another commentary. Psalm 5, or I can give you Psalm 11. Just give you a bit of Psalm 5. What's good about Psalm 5 is you've got a bit of the balance of God's love and his angst with the wicked. Psalm 5 verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. 
I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favour as with a shield. See how God hates evildoers. But he loves and blesses his people. You see, just as we are not one-dimensional, God is not one-dimensional. Don Carson, he's one of the, the top current theologians, wrote a book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It is difficult. There is complexity in it. But you are complex too. Being holy entails hating wickedness. When you watch a movie and you see the baddies cop it, do you grieve? Yes or no? You don't grieve, do you? No. Why? Don't you like the baddies? Don't you love them? Well, you'd wish they repent. You'd certainly hope for that. But if they're not going to repent, then you don't mind what they cop. What about the goodies? You want them to come out on top, don't you? Now, what happens if you go to a movie and they swap that? The goodie ends up being hung. You know, you see him on a, on a gibbet. And the, uh, the, the, the baddie ends up going out juggling balls and that's the end of the end how do you feel you like it it's something inside us we're not we it's injustice it's not right we hate evil and we're supposed to hate evil now we're still supposed to love people and that's we'll come to that in us in a moment it is complex isn't it even Jesus says he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with your gladness beyond your comrades. And Jesus said to uh, those who thought, uh, trusting in their own accomplishments, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And one day that's going to happen big time. But we need to keep in balance with God's love, don't we? It is not wrong to hate God's enemies. That is loving righteousness. It is part of hating wickedness and lawlessness, as Jesus does. So you don't need to feel guilty at the end of a movie when you're glad that the baddie copped it. But what about our enemies? What did Jesus instruct us to do with our enemies? We love them, aren't we? Pray for our persecutors so that we might be like our Heavenly Father. We want our enemies to repent, just as our Heavenly Father does. Because if they don't repent, they're going to cop it big time. But 
But we also love justice, don't we? Just like our Heavenly Father. And consider, Paul says in Romans 5 that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's holiness and his hatred of evil only amplifies his grace to his chosen people. God has mercy on his enemies, us. To the one he saved from his wrath. So we to love our enemies and agree with God about his. Finally, David finishes his prayer to the God who knows everything about him and he wants to deal with the enemy that's within him. You'll notice a humble and contrite prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try, try me and know my thoughts. Does God already do that? He does. But he's willing to be open with God. He knows God knows him completely. But he's asking God to keep doing it. And then see if there be any grievous way in me. Grievous to who? To God. Is there anything that's offending you, Lord, that you, don't, you want me to stop or something you want me to start? And then lead me in the way everlasting. David wants God to know and to to be open with God and that any behaviour that grieves God that he'd let David know about so that he can then pray, Lord, help me to not keep doing it. Let me encourage you to learn those two verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And pray that with your prayers each day. A great prayer. Because God does know you. He knows me. And he wants us to draw near to him. And he delights. He delights to draw near to his humble ones. Who take his word seriously. And continue to turn away from wickedness and seek his help to be holy like he is. Let me pray for us. Oh, our loving Heavenly Father, we just praise you that you are the Infinite One, the high and lofty One who inhabits eternity. We just praise you that you also delight to draw close to your humble ones. We thank you for that. Please help us to live with the... uh, the reality of your knowing everything about us, of knowing us completely, living with the reality that you're everywhere, living with the the wonder of the complexity of the way you've made us and the way you've made this world, and living with the fact that you are a holy God. Please be at work in us for your son's sake, that we might bring glory to the Lord Jesus in our lives. Grow us and do a deep work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.